Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Thank you for being online with Appamata this morning for all you do. I would like to ask um, people to go around and say their names. So, and, and where they are, uh, literally in space and time right now. Uh, so I'm gonna start with Becky, and Becky, I will ask you to pick the next person to, to speak out. Uh, if you would do that, and then we'll, we'll go around that way, okay? Uh, okay, everybody's muted. You can unmute yourself now. Hi, I'm I'm Becky, and I'm in Vancouver, British Columbia, in Canada. And Brian. Hi, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Brian, and I am in Austin, Texas. Uh, I'll go to Kim. I'm Kim, and I'm in Austin, Texas, and I'll go to Ellen. I'm Ellen, and I'm in Richmond, Virginia. I'll go to Nancy. Hi, I'm Nancy. I'm in Dallas, Texas. Uh, Nelda. Good morning, everyone. I'm Nelda, and I'm in Austin, Texas, and I'll go to Kate. Morning, everyone. I am also in Austin, um, and I'll go to Paul. Hello, everyone. I'm Paul. I'm here in Austin, Texas, as well. And Paul, you pick somebody. Did you? I'm sorry. Were y'all able to hear me? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Oh, uh, Kathy. I'm sorry. I didn't pick. <laughs> Good morning, I'm Kathy, and I'm also in Austin. And I see Mirren's name on the screen, but she may not be visible to everyone, if you have none. Mirren? Uh, hi, I'm Mirren. I'll be visible in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm in Austin, Texas. Thank you. And I don't know who to pick. I think we have everybody. Everybody except our timekeeper. And you can Laurie. see over the altar there. Wave your hand, Laurie. <laughs> I'm Laurie, and I'm obviously in Boston. And then? And I'm Joel. Joel Moreno. I get to give the Dharma talk today, <laughs> which is an amazing experience for me. There's a, a quote I'm going to read in a minute uh, where in In the comment on the famous um, case 18, Dongshan's three pounds of flax, um, the 
a commentator, Wu Men, also known as Mu Man, um, says of what Dongshan says, old man Dongshan had learned a bit of oyster chan. As soon as he opens his shell, he shows his liver and guts. So I reflect on this every time I give a talk, that it's impossible to not show all of me, all my vulnerabilities, and everything that, all, all the capacities, everything that shows up. And that's one of the things that is emphasized, I think, in taking part in an intensive. As the story goes, uh, Flint's teacher said to him at some point uh, about participating in, a, uh, in an intensive, everybody can see who you are. You might as well be able to see it too. So it's good that you're <laughs> taking part in the intensive. So I, I'm, I'm going to be leading with Todd an intensive next weekend, uh, starting on Friday night and all day on Saturday from 6.30 in the morning until 5 something in the afternoon on Saturday and Sunday. And uh, I invite everyone to participate. I'm going to send out some email later today with a reminder about that and, and hope that it will be something that, that it will be something you can connect with. And what I want to talk about is uh, kind of uh, acting like an oyster and exposing my liver and guts here. Is that I just want to say I'm like the world's worst person to be leading a um, uh, uh, intensive having to do with quads. Uh, I have such trouble with them. And I'm, I, I picture myself as being like the, like the student who just wouldn't get it when, when uh, the teacher said a turning phrase because uh, I, I, uh, I just am thrown back on some on, on what I have and like how do I get out of this? I don't know. So anyway, uh, I know that there are many people, uh, Kim, for example, who have spent a lot of time uh, and very earnestly and and skillfully explored Kamanse, and I've learned a great deal from him. But I, I'm going to share two teaching stories. I'll just talk about them as teaching stories first. Um, actually, first I want to talk about Halloween a little bit, and then the teaching stories, and then back to Halloween. Okay? So it's Halloween. What is that? That's from uh, a, an old English word meaning the eve of All Saints Day, the All Hallows, the Holy Ones. And it is itself a holy day on the Christian calendar. And it has equivalents in many other cultures, in Asian cultures and Latin American cultures from pre-Christian times. Uh, and, uh, and we know that the Romans had an equivalent sort of a celebration uh, for connecting with the souls of the dead. And um, what do we do on Halloween in this country? Well, we, we allow our kids to dress up in costumes. And we allow them to go from house to house and get candy. And then we say they can't have all that candy. Because so, it's really bad for them. Uh, and the costumes, sometimes the costumes are princesses or Spider-Man or, or uh, Things people want to be for uh, more grown-up kids, 
Uh, you could be a sexy nurse or a sexy doctor or a, you know something with some erotic overtones and go to a party, that kind of thing. Uh, and Austin is very big on young adult as a as a place for young adults to celebrate Halloween. Um, but what is behind this custom? Um, to me, I'm I'm imagining. I don't have any proof of this, but I'm imagining that it comes from a time uh, when there was a practice of making offerings to the dead so that they would not come back into this life to harm us, that they would feel propitiated enough by food or what other offerings we make. Uh, and Laurie knows a good deal about Mexico, I'm sure, and the, the celebrations that are held on the Day of the Dead in Mexico. Where it's a kind of, a, I understand, kind of a family celebration. You go and clean up the graveyard and have a picnic lunch, have a kind of a joyous connection. But beyond that, there is the fear of what happens after death that affects us all. And whether the souls of the dead who might be angry at us could come back to harm us. What you know, are the things we can do to, to uh, propitiate that? And, it, and, and so what I think of this as, uh, is as a kind of titration that in our culture that we have turned something very serious, uh, having to do with dealing with powerful forces into something that's kind of fun, non-threatening, maybe even party-like. And we are titrating our fear of death and our fear of interactions with death that carry so much uh, anxiety, with, including our own, our own death and, and certainly the powerful emotions of grief and fear we have around losing someone that we love uh, and, and the ways that the, those, those emotions can so powerfully dominate our lives for so long. So that's it for Halloween for now. I want to talk now about uh, the, the Buddha's time, Gautama Buddha. Uh, there was apparently a huge debate going on for generations just before the time of the Buddha uh, between various uh, philosophical schools and various teachers about whether or not human beings have a soul, anything that continues after death. Is there, is there anything in life, in our daily lives, that is um, beyond our material interactions with the world? Is there a spark? Is it holy? How can we know? And some people said no. There's a, and there were many teachers at the time of the Buddha who said there was only material, the material world, and, and we were just making up stories about this other stuff and um, uh, just forget it. They were kind of like uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, I think, or uh, Samuel Beckett or the other existentialist writers of the mid 20th century who insisted that we were just trapped in this existence, there was no way out, and 
things were not going to get any better or any worse, and we were responsible for our own activities. Which, particularly in their telling, is very weak. Um, the Buddha's response to the debate about this, and to the, to the people that said, oh no, of course, there's a soul that transmigrates after death. It may re you may reincarnate as another person, or it may transmigrate into another type of a body where you work out the karma that you have accumulated in this lifetime and previous lifetimes. And that may be a very painful process. And um, people spent a lot of time coming to talk to the Buddha about this. And from the very beginning of his teaching, he refused to answer the question. He said, it's, not, it's just not a valid question because it, it doesn't have anything to do with how you live your life right now. I mean, it may be true, it may be false, but how are you gonna act right now? Are you going to focus on how to live with compassion, loving kindness, generosity, forbearance, all the things, all the qualities that take us out of an obsessive self-focus, can you adopt those and, and treat them as ways to guide your life? Or do you want to sit around and philosophize about these questions that really cannot be answered in this lifetime? So with that in mind, I have two teaching stories to share, which I see as a very strong the first one is from the uh, gateless, passing through the gateless barrier, this book, Bogu's uh, wonderful commentary on uh, the, the gateless gate or the, or the gateless barrier. And it's case 18. And I want to read the case and the response. And then Bogu's, um, I'll read the beginning of Bogu's own response to this. And then I have something to add to that. One time, when a monk asked Dongshan, what is Buddha? Dongshan responded, three pounds of flax. Wu Men's comment. Old man Dongshan had learned a bit of oyster charm. As soon as he opens his shell, he shows his liver and guts. Nevertheless, tell me where or how do you see Dongshan? And then a, a verse, uh, further complicating this complicated response. The abrupt utterance of three pounds of flax. These words are close to the truth, but the intention is even closer. Those who talk about yes or no, affirm or deny, are just yes and no people. And here's Guogu's comment, the beginning of it. I'm truncating a lot of very interesting things to say, uh, that he has to say, uh, by leaving out several pages here. There's a reason for that. Guogu's comment. This case is actually very short. Some person asked his Chan master Dongshan, what is Buddha? To which he said, three pounds of flax. I can assure you that there is more to the story than meets the eye. So this case involves Dongshan Shouju, whom we have already encountered in case 15 in one of his students. What is Buddha is a question that is actually quite relevant to Americans. In a sense, you are at an advantage since your mind is not cluttered with notions of what a Buddha is. Over thousands of years, Buddhists have developed very sophisticated philosophical understandings about 
not just who Shakyamuni Buddha was, but also the notion of Buddhahood and what that entails. Be thankful that your mind is not cluttered with those theories. Uh, some of us are pretty cluttered, <laughs> even at the rudimentary level. <clears throat> Chan arose as a reactionary movement against scholastic Buddhism, a movement toward personal experience and away from theories and doctrines. Since Chan as a movement had already developed for about two or three hundred years as a self-conscious movement, uh, you can be sure that this monk in this 10th century context is asking about something else. In Chan, the question, what is Buddha, has a fundamental meaning. What is it that constitutes Buddha? Or in other words, what constitutes awakening? The question, the question can thus be simplified to what is awakening? This question is something that touches the very heart of you. Where is your freedom? Why are you not free? Perhaps this is what drives you to practice for 10, 20, 30 years. So when the monk asks Dangshan, it is perhaps out of a deep spiritual crisis Dongshan answers, three pounds of flax. Why this answer? Wumen's comment and verse are worth considering. Old man Dongshan had learned a bit of oyster chan. As soon as he opens his shell, he shows his liver and guts. Nevertheless, tell me, where or how do you see Dongshan? So we start with a question about Buddha. We get to flax, and Wumen ignores both of those. It says, how do you see Dangshan? Also missing from this particular story is the students having any kind of realization as a result of it. Because that's a standard feature of these kinds of stories, right? So it's, a, it's just interesting to see what's there and what's missing. Another way of saying this would be Dongshan, without hesitation or reservation, completely reveals to the students, student the liver and guts of Chan, of awakening. How do you see Don Chan? Do you see that he's not holding anything back? That he is so compassionate in his teaching? People have all kinds of theories about three pounds of flax. For example, some people may think three pounds of flax. Ah, yes, his mind was in the present moment. Now, I've read another version where Don Chan is sitting in the courtyard and he's sifting through some flax, but that's left out of this version. <clears throat> so yes, his mind was in the present moment. Perhaps he happened to wear a thick robe that weighed approximately three pounds. And because Zen is everywhere, all things manifest, true Zen. So he could have picked up anything he just said. Or perhaps it was winter and monks were wearing layers and layers of heavy robes. Or maybe when Dongshan heard the question, he had just received some new fabric from the market. If you go along these lines, you are very far from what's at stake here. This is not to say that these answers are wrong, but they are just conceptualizations and, and have little to do with the aim of this going on. Our discriminating mind is characterized by yes and no, affirmation and denial, such as, I like this, I don't like that, this is good and that is bad, and by thoughts like, I understand now, everything is Buddha nature, enlightenment is everywhere. All of these are products of the discriminating mind. So how do you see the liver and guts, the heart of Chan in this answer? You would have to meditate on what is Buddha, 
three pounds of flax. Why? Why is Buddha three pounds of flax? This is the wato, or critical phrase, of this going on. Arouse an earnest desire to resolve this. Embrace the not knowing. This is the way to see the liver and guts of Dhammashan. So I'm going to stop there. And uh, if you haven't read this book, what uh, Wogum has to say is very instructive. But I, 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 cannot, I could not find it. Uh, I have it printed out. But I saw another commentary on this by another Chan master, whose name I cannot unfortunately remember right now, uh, who said that he thinks it's funny the way that Japanese people make everything so mystical. And that there's, that you need to remember that this was occurring in a social and political context. The Chinese or the, the regional or the overlord or the central government or whatever, uh, at that time, was um, it, it ebbed and flowed, but there was a constant tension between monastic life and the wider political life of the country. And the government would sometimes support monasteries and sometimes shut, shut them down and then take their assets. That's happened in, in England in the 16th century when Henry VIII closed all the monasteries and took all the assets and became an enormously rich king as a result and settled all the war debts from the previous wars, etc. But at any rate, um, what this commentator from who knows Chinese history said was the government was supporting uh, the monasteries at this time. And when a person became a, a monk, they would give them three pounds of flax, or actually literally a robe or you know, clothing amounting to three pounds of flax. So that was government support. So this person goes on that the real that the, the question is that that uh, is animating Dongshan here is uh, you think you're asking a holy question, but you know what? We're under the thumb of the government. How do you like that? You know? uh, how, is anything, is anything you do going to be significant given the political situation that we're in? That seems like a real Watteau to me. It seems like a real story to grapple with. So, I, you know, I'm one of those people that uh, here I am. I'm not going with the version of the story that I like. I'm going with the version of the story that, um, you know, makes more sense to me given what I know life in America right now and, and life under political systems and the struggle for freedom and self-determination and, the, and the, the powerful urge to find something that is outside of that to which we can attach ourselves and just how that is uh, you know, a tension that pretty much I think anybody participating in Buddhism and in Zen would feel. Uh, and again, I want to point to an absence in that story by quoting a different story. Take me a second to look at it. 
This is a modern American translation of an ancient story from early in the Buddhist life, actually written, I believe, by the wife of the rock and roll singer Nick Cave. Uh, during Buddha's time, there lived a woman named Kisa Gotami. She may have been a relative of Gotama's, since that was a family name. She married young and gave birth to a son. One day, the baby fell sick and died soon after. Kisa Gotami loved her son greatly and refused to believe that her son was dead. She carried the body of her son around her town, asking if there was anyone who could bring her son back to life. Villagers all saw that the son was already dead and there was nothing that they could, that they could do. They advised her to accept his death and make arrangements for the funeral. In great grief, she fell upon her knees and clutched her son's body close to hers. She kept uttering for her son to wake up. A village elder took pity on her and suggested to her to consult the Buddha. Kisabhutami, we cannot help you, but you should go to the Buddha. Maybe he can bring your son back to life. She immediately went to the Buddha's residence and pleaded for him to bring her son back to life. He replied, Kisagotami, I have a way to bring your son back to life. My Lord, she said, I will do anything to bring my son back. If that is the case, then I need you to find me something. Bring me a mustard seed, but it must be taken from a house where no one residing in the house has ever lost a family member or felt grief. Bring this seed back to me, and your son will come back to life. Kisogotami went from house to house, trying to find the mustard seed. At the first house, a young woman offered to give her some mustard seeds, but then Kisogotami asked if she had ever lost a family member to death, and the young woman said her grandmother died a few months ago. She moved on to the second house. A husband died a few years ago. The third house, an uncle had been lost, and the fourth house had lost an aunt recently. She kept moving from house to house, but the answer was all the same. Every house had lost a family member to death. Kisa Gotami finally came to realize that there is no one in the world who has never lost a family member to death. She now understood that death is inevitable and a natural part of life. Putting aside her grief, she buried her son in the forest. She then returned to the Buddha and became his father. So to me, that's a very powerful teaching story. What does Kisahotami learn? She learns that her grief is real and that it is universal. Everyone loses people that they love. And eventually, that points to our own death. As the Buddha said, the one who is dearest to us ourselves. And what she then turns to, what the Buddha has taught her by sending her on this search for a mustard seed from a house that has not been affected by death, what she learns is compassion and empathy. And she learns to see through the intensity of her grief and to titrate it with the experience that she shares with other people. So, as a teaching story, 
I am much more drawn to the story of Kisugotami than I am to the story of Three Pounds of Lettuce. And, and I am led, and, and the reason why is because I feel like I'm being guided by the same question that made the Buddha refuse to answer the question as to whether there are whether or not there is an immortal soul. You can't answer that right now, but what will you do in this life to awaken compassion and generosity and forbearance? How can you live love without experiencing grief? Can be done. So those to me are the, the lessons that the Buddha is teaching and that can come through in the Chinese wisdom literature uh, and the grappling with Gong uh, An and Watou. Uh, I, I just admit I'm not ready for that yet. So this is my gateway in the story of Kisilata. Thank you for hearing me about that. I hope, I hope that by showing my liver and guts, I can show that you don't have to, you don't have to react the way I all my life reacted to the stories of the, of the koans, which is to say, I just don't want anything to do with that. That it's possible to say, okay, I'm not ready yet, but I'm gonna, do what I can to learn what I can about this wisdom literature and what is behind it that can be shared and that I can embrace in my life to help me live with compassion and joy and love. I hope that that can be a bridge for you also. I'd be happy to entertain any questions. And I, I, it's back on um, spotlight on me right now, so I can't see any hands going up. Nancy, if someone raises a hand, could you let me know? Yes. Okay, Kim, please. Yeah, so it... That's a, if you can hear, I believe that that's a, uh, a moving truck backing up right in front of the... Well, I'm glad it wasn't me. Okay. So it's, it would... One could make the conclusion from the story, the mustard seed story, that it's silly to have grief because everyone... Because death is inevitable. Losing someone is inevitable. And I'm just wondering if you want to talk about that. It's It's... Uh, Ellen and I are taking another course where, where basically the teacher has been saying that, that there's no birth, there's no death, so why should we grieve? <clears throat> or, or in the mustard seed story, it's a little different. Everyone, this happens to everyone, and yeah. and we know too that that when we we're, when we're with someone who has had great loss, it's it's not helpful to say to talk about your own loss or to say, well, that happens to everyone. Well, 
I'm not sure that I would agree that it's not good to talk about your own loss. It's certainly not good to talk exclusively about your own loss or to make it all about yourself. But, um, and I, just on the point that you're making, I think that the, that the conclusion of the story as reported by the person who I believe is Nick Cave's wife is that it's silly to feel grief. That Kisako Tommy comes to realize, oh yeah, I, I shouldn't be grieving in this way. Uh, this happens to everybody, and therefore I gotta get I, I gotta get over it. That's what this person seems to be concluding in that story. I take a different lesson from it, which is that she learns compassion, that she learns how connected she is with everybody. And that that grief, I mean, can you hate your grief away? Can you tell it to go away? I mean, that's the, the second part of what you said is not helpful for people is to say, oh, well, it, it's all empty. Everybody dies, so get over it. Is that helpful? Is that, does that actually make the emotion go away? Uh, or does it um, lead the person hearing it to greater wisdom? I just, I, I'm not seeing that. So, uh, and, and you know, I will say that in the Buddha's early teachings, you know, here, it, it's so striking to me that here the Buddha came from six years of privation, almost killing himself, which is based on the notion, the privation was based on the notion from the Vedic and Brahmanic culture that the body is a uh, disgusting trap for our immortal soul. This is very familiar to Christians as well. Uh, and, you know, that we have to, we have to punish the body. Certainly we have to control the body, but even better, punish the body to free the soul. And uh, that, you know, he almost killed himself doing this. And then he said, you know, this isn't really changing anything. Maybe there's a different way. And he remembered happiness and joy after being saved from death by a young woman who gave him some food to eat. And he went to meditate from a different starting point. Starting point was not that the body is bad, but that it is possible instead to connect with something greater uh, that leads us to understand how intimately we are connected to all life, to all of existence. And that in fact, it's so intimately connected that we are never not completely part of it. It is that, that we are everything all at once, just in a little package that has this uh, consciousness, self-consciousness that makes us think we're, we're separate. But, you know, see that, see the mistaken notion behind that, and that can be the beginning of freedom. Uh, but curiously, then he began teaching and some of his earliest teachings on how to meditate involve such things as, are you interested in sex? Think about how disgusting that is. Do you want to stay alive? Go sit in a charnel ground where vultures are picking bodies alive and see how precious this body is to you. It'll make you really disgusted. 
lots of things that did, that involved disgust and fear, and that he that he kind of fell back in to the source from the culture that he was in. And as the story goes, Ananda says, uh, "Buddha, our followers are killing themselves. They're getting all upset about this teaching, and they're just saying, you know, it's not worth being alive. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna end it right now." And the Buddha said, "Wait, wait! I didn't mean it like that. Almost literally, he said the basis of my awakening is joy, and meditation should lead to joy, and the monastic life should lead to joy." and to the awakening of connection, and compassion, and generosity, and that, that those constitute wisdom, not an obsessive focus on uh, punishing the body, hating the body. So to me, those are connected to the, to the question that Kim asked, you know, is it, should we ignore our grief? No. It's real, but we should know that we share it. And that even though we feel it so intensely in our body and mind, that it's not our personal property. It is the, as, as Flint has said many times, it's the grief moving through us. Thanks for that question, Karen. Any others? <laughs>